Good morning and greetings in the name of Jesus to each one of you. It's good to see you here. It's especially good to see Guy and Diane here with us this morning. Welcome. And um, I made, I'll just give you a little bit of a heads up. They share a birthday on the same day, and that's coming up on Friday. So today maybe we can celebrate their birthday together a little bit, their birthdays together as well. We are in the season of Advent, a time of hope, promise, joy, peace, a time of anticipation of, of what is to come, a time of darkness before the dawn. And while the promised Messiah did come to earth 2,000 years ago as a newborn baby, we continue to share in the waiting, the watching, the anticipation of his promised return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, in many ways, we're not that much different than they were awaiting the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. I suspect for hundreds of, of, for several hundred years at least, and maybe even more than that, leading up to Jesus' birth, there were many Jews that wondered whether the promises of the Redeemer given throughout the Old Testament were actually going to come to pass. There were 400 years of silence between the last prophets in the Old Testament and the eventual birth of Jesus. That's at least 15 to 20 generations of people, of Jews, knowing that a Messiah was promised, but apparently nothing was happening. And while there were certainly many that clung to the hope and the promise, there were many others that lost hope. They gave up. They questioned whether God was actually going to keep his promise. Today, we await his promised return. Many in previous generations uh, have believed that he would return in their lifetime. Uh, well, he didn't. But that does not diminish the veracity of God's promise. Um, it simply means that God does things on his terms, in his way, on his timetable. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time has, was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus came the first time at exactly the right time. And he's going to come again when the fullness of time has come. And we have the assurance of that. We don't know when, but we can know it with absolute certainty. And we can await with joyful anticipation. God keeps his promises. Regardless what is happening around us or what we are facing, we can have genuine peace and hope, knowing with absolute confidence that Jesus is on the throne and knows what each one of us is facing. <clears throat> We find accounts of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke and some of the miraculous events leading up to them. We're familiar with the stories of an angel visiting Mary as well as Joseph, the star, the shepherds, the host of angels, King Herod and the wise men. Those are all familiar aspects of the story to us. But there is one aspect of the Christmas story that we generally overlook. And 
I would even go so far as to say perhaps we intentionally avoid. And that is the genealogy of Jesus. We just simply don't pay any attention to it. Um, And it's recorded twice, both in Matthew and in Luke. And this morning, I want us to focus on some of the reasons that I believe these genealogies are important to the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, I am not going to be reading the text of these two chapters, these portions this morning. Neither am I going to be expounding on them one by one because we don't know very much about a lot of the people named in them. However, I do want you to turn your Bibles to both Matthew 1 and Luke 3 and hold your place there. And we're going to be looking at these two, what I believe are important passages in the story of uh, Christ's birth. First of all, just kind of a high-level some high-level observations between these two accounts. So the, the first, Matthew 1, 1 to 17, has the first set of genealogies. And then in Luke 3, verses 23 to 38, we have another uh, set of genealogies. The genealogy that Matthew gives is significantly shorter than the one given by uh, Luke. Matthew begins with Abraham, and uh, while Luke traces all the way back to Adam. So that's part of the reason there's a longer list, but there's also more differences than that. It's important for us to note or be aware of that the Gospel of Matthew was written from a Jewish perspective for a Jewish audience. And his goal is to clearly establish that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he does that throughout the entire book. Um, And he starts out and gives three groups of 14 names um, leading up to the, uh, the tracing the genealogy. Now, that's not a coincidence, I don't believe. Numbers had a lot of significance Uh, in the Jewish culture, and seven was the number of perfection. So three groups of 14. And the other thing that is clear as we look at Matthew's list, it's not a comprehensive list. The three groups of 14 names just simply means that he's covering the span of genealogies. And they would often group things together in this way to simplify memorization because in those days, books were rare and people that could read them was rare as well. And so memorization was a lot of how they learned and remembered things. And it wasn't uncommon within Jewish culture that not every generation would be mentioned. As long as you knew that they followed each other. They could skip two or three generations and hit the more significant names and cover all of the generations and know what they were talking about with confidence. So Matthew is establishing with his list of 42 names that Jesus is legitimately in the royal lineage of King David, fulfilling that specific prophecy. What's interesting is that included in Matthew's list is four women four women's names. 
lineages were typically traced by the men. And so that's one thing that's a little bit unique. Luke, on the other hand, is written not for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And rather than focusing on the royal bloodline of David, Luke takes the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam, which emphasizes that Jesus came for all humanity, not just the Jews. Um, Luke's list, get this, has 77 names. Again, the number seven is prominent and, and significant in which, how many names are included and so forth. The list is basically identical from Abraham to David where the two overlap, but then diverges after David in Luke to follow Nathan's lineage versus Solomon's in Matthew. Um, and there's only two names after David that are repeated in both lists, and those are Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, and that's father and son. Now, there is no evidence that these are the same individuals, but simply shared the same names. I mean, it, it's possible they were, but there's certainly no evidence that they were actually the same individuals. And there have been a lot of questions and speculations about the apparent contradictions in these two inspired genealogies. Why are they so different? Don't they contradict with each other? Is this really the genealogies of Jesus? And so I'd like to just take a little bit of a closer look now at each one as well. So turning to Matthew, Matthew fixates on Jesus' genealogy literally from verse 1. In verse 1, he says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He just immediately, um, generations, another word that many translations use is genealogies. That this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately establishing that Jesus Christ or stating that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. In many ways, that is the thesis statement of his entire book. He keeps coming back to that, and he is reinforcing that throughout the, the, the Gospel of Matthew. It's all about establishing that Jesus was who he said he was. And Matthew lays out the facts to substantiate what he emphatically stated there in first verse. And then in verse 17, he, he summarizes that and says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So he lists it. He broke it down in these three categories between Abraham and David, David in the captivity, and then from the captivity until Jesus Christ. It's interesting that these first two groups, from Abraham to captivity, can actually be verified through other Old Testament genealogies. Um, some of these individuals we know more about than others, and there are stories about them. Others are simply mentioned and their lives are summarized in a single sentence or maybe as a phrase uh, in the course of Old Testament history. 
But then there's 14 generations that are listed from the Babylonian captivity until up to Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, in verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. This final group of 14 individuals listed is unknown in history because that happened in that intertestamental period. Um, and known as the silent years, and there really is not history or not much history recorded. We don't know anything about these. I put together a, um, a chart showing this a bit and tracing the royal lineage from King David to Joseph was essential to establishing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And without this fact clearly understood, there was no way that any Jew would have believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. What's fascinating is that the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees never challenged Jesus' royal lineage. Think about it. They questioned him on a lot of other things, but they never questioned the royal lineage from which he came. They knew that Jesus was a descendant in the royal line of David. Had they any doubt, they would have been confronted with it, probably repeatedly. And so Matthew establishes this fact immediately and precisely in these first 17 verses of his gospel. Matthew also mentions five women in establishing the royal bloodline of Jesus. Now, um, I, I said four earlier, and it's true, there are four primary ones, but then Mary is also named, which we'll get to. And it's important for us to note that the men, and some of whom we have their story, others we don't, but were sinful, imperfect humans. And the women mentioned only reinforces the reality that God redeems humanity in its fallenness and brokenness throughout history and chose these imperfect individuals through which to bring the promised Messiah, the sinless redeemer and king. And so just highlighting these a little bit, the first one is Tamar, and the way that it's uh, referred to in uh, in the text, in verse 3, is that, he, that Perez was of Tamar. Um, and so, but the mother, it was, she was the mother of Perez. So Judah fathered Perez through an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Judah had mistreated Tamar, and she sought justice by pretending to be a prostitute. Tamar was called more righteous than Judah. Um, Jesus is called, in Revelation, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. God chose this man with his imperfections and this woman to be an ancestor of Jesus Christ, very intentionally. Next, we have Rahab. Rahab was the mother of Boaz, and I don't know that I had ever realized that. Uh, we know the story of Boaz and Ruth. Rahab the harlot 
from Jer in Jericho that hid the spies and saved, and she was saved from, and her family from the destruction of Jericho by hanging a scarlet rope out of her window. And that's a picture of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Clearly, she was a Gentile with less than reputable history, and yet God redeemed Rahab's story, and she's included in this list of ancestors who were chosen to show what redemption looks like. And Rahab was the great-grandmother of King David. Pretty amazing. Ruth is a story that we're much more familiar with. She was the mother of Obed, a Moabitess widow living in Israel. Widows were looked down upon in general or not considered. They were more the outcasts. Foreigners were looked at with suspicion and so combined these, and that's who Ruth was. She was doomed socially. Boaz showed her redemption by taking her into his care and marrying her. So God chose another apparent Gentile outcast as to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the grandmother of King David. Then we have Bathsheba. She is not mentioned by name in verse 6, but she is described as the wife of Uriah. But she was the mother of Solomon. It's interesting that Bathsheba's name is not mentioned. We know the story. David committed adultery with Bathsheba while she was Uriah's wife. And in an effort to cover up his sin, he killed her husband Uriah. David married Bathsheba, and Solomon and Nathan, uh, which we see in Luke, um, as were sons of of David and Bathsheba. David's sin certainly deserved severe judgment, even death, but instead God extended his grace, and it is through this relationship of David and Bathsheba that the promised Redeemer comes. God's covenant with David at the end of his life reinforces this promise. In 2 Samuel, we have this promise that is given to King David by Nathan. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed, the, proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men but my mercy shall not depart from, away from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So clearly David was promised that the kingdom, his royal lineage would continue indefinitely or into eternity forever, it says. And then we have Mary in verse 16. The previous four women lived with some level of uh, criticism, misunderstanding, judgment, and shame from the way that because of their past, some actions within their control, other things out of their control. But 
marry, uh, such as their ethnicity, but Mary also lived with these false accusations hanging over her and the associated treatment when she had not done nothing wrong. She was simply the chosen virgin to which Jesus would be born. And I think that these women specifically reveal the grace of God to everyone, regardless of our backgrounds, our actions, our gender, our ethnicity. None of this stuff matters. God sees each one of us and can redeem every situation to use it to ultimately glorify him. In the genealogy of Jesus, those that have been abused, marginalized, mistreated, and exalted are exalted, not erased in this story from God. God didn't reject humanity when humanity rejected God. Rather, he sent our Redeemer through this imperfect humanity to live among us and ultimately die in our place because of his immeasurable love for us. As I understand, a royal lineage has to pass from father to son. So Matthew establishes this link by tying the lineage from Jesus back through Joseph all the way to David. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, as we know, but by marrying Mary, he became Jesus' adopted father. As such, Jesus was Joseph's legal heir and had the right to claim that royal lineage. It's interesting that Joseph is the focal point of the Matthew account of the birth of Jesus. If you look further in Matthew 1, it's about jo from Joseph's perspective as to what happened. And it's about Joseph's dream, his encounter with the angel, the promise of God with us, again reinforcing the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to be with us. And so I believe that this genealogical record in Matthew establishes that Jesus is the rightful claim, has the rightful claim to the Son of God, the Messiah. The Son of David, I mean. So then we turn to Luke 3. And it's interesting that Luke does not interject the genealogy of Jesus until the end of chapter 3, which chronologically is after Jesus' baptism and just before his ministry begins. I don't know the significance of that, but that is the case. The first two chapters of Luke give a more detailed account about Mary and the miraculous conception of Jesus, as well as the uh, well-known story of his birth. And like I already mentioned, the genealogy given in Luke has a lot more, is much more extensive, and it goes all the way back to Adam, which indicates to the reader that Jesus' coming was not just about fulfilling the promise to the Jews through Abraham, but rather to all mankind. And then also, rather than starting with Abraham, like Matthew, or starting with Adam in this case, Luke begins with Jesus and works his way backwards through 77 generations. In verse 23, and Jesus himself be, began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Now, 
very interesting several words here. Jesus, supposedly the son of Joseph. So he's clearly articulating that Jesus was not his biological father. And this is the only time in this whole list where the son, uh, the term the son, is actually used in the original Greek. Now, um, let me stay with me here just a minute. You notice that it says that which was the son of Heli, the son is italicized. If you look in your King James Version down through verse 38, all of the sons are italicized. What that indicates is that those words were not in the Greek, but were added for clarity in the translation process. King James does that. The italicized words were added for clarity. But so this would have actually read, um, so rather than saying which, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, it would have just simply been which was of Heli. Um, and I believe that that is significant in this case because Luke only lists the men in his genealogy. But in this first phrase, he seems to be actually saying, Jesus, the supposed son of Joseph, in parentheses he would be, but actually the son of Mary, which was of Heli. And so I believe that Luke, representing Mary's story through the first several chapters, is here tracing the genealogy of Mary rather than Joseph. As you look down over this list now, um, and, and so part of the reason for this, I believe, is since there could have been some question about the legitimacy of Jesus' royalty because of his not being a biological son of Joseph coming through the royal lineage, Luke now traces Jesus' actual bloodline through his biological mother back through, the, back through King David and Bathsheba all the way to Adam. And while I had never studied these genealogies previously, I did know they didn't match and never really understood why. Not that I question it, but it was just something that I never really dug into. But to me, this resolves a lot of the questions and differences between these lists, which are obviously diverge from David, where the one is the sons of Nathan, or follows the son of Nathan, and the other the Solomon. There is one other aspect about this genealogy in Luke, which is unique and revealing about God. And that's verse 38. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the, the comprehensive list there, and we'll come back to that then. Uh, I'm sorry, I missed a slide here. Go to verse 38. <clears throat> which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam is listed as the son of God. And as mentioned previously, a more literal translation would be Adam, which is of God. 
God is the father of all humanity, and he sends his son Jesus to redeem us, to purchase us, and to adopt us even though we have rejected him and turned away from him. And God loves humanity so much that he sent his only son to die in our place that we could share in his inheritance. And so the genealogies of Jesus in, given in Matthew and Luke don't contradict each other, but they clarify and reinforce the beauty of God's redemptive plan. Yes, Jesus had a royal lineage through Joseph, through David, through the adoption of Joseph. But in addition, uh, Mary's ancestral grandparents were David and Bathsheba, same as Joseph's. God, the creator of Adam, comes to earth in the form of a baby to live among us, to redeem us from the mess that we got ourselves into. Emmanuel, God with us, just simply reinforced that God came and today is still here. He dwells in the temple of our hearts. <clears throat> Wrapping or thinking about now some practical applications of you all. Each one of us is a part of a genealogy of which we have no control. We were born into the family of God's choosing. Given we live in a fallen world, I suspect many of us have wished or at least wondered what it would be like to have been born into a different family or a different time, or a different place. But God placed each one of us in our specific families, here and now, very intentionally. And each one of us has the privilege of being part of God's ultimate story. In the moment, it may feel insignificant, unfair, or, or worse, but in God's story, there are no insignificant people. Everyone has something of value to bring. Now, just a little bit of a diversion to a, a personal aspect of this, if you will. And we all have stories that I'm sure that we could tell about our ancestors. My great-great-grandmother, which would have been my grandpa's grandma, Catherine Dunn, was born in Cork, Ireland, in 1811. When she was two years old, her parents decided to relocate to the U.S. It's my understanding they were Quakers and they wanted the religious freedom here in the United States. On their transatlantic voyage, her mother died. After their families arrived in Pennsylvania, an Amish family ended up taking little Catherine into their home when her father felt incapable of caring for all his children. And there were older siblings, but the number is in question. <clears throat> Although apparently never officially adopted, Catherine grew up in this Amish home and ended up marrying a widowed Amish bishop, Mose J. Miller, from Holmes County, Ohio. She died in 1890 four years after my grandpa Burkholder was born in 1886. My grandpa Burkholder died seven years before I was born, and, but my grandpa had never had the privilege of knowing Catherine. Now, we know very little about Catherine. 
However, I believe she would have had ample reason to question why God took her mother, whom she never had the privilege of knowing, and perhaps she had limited contact even with the rest of her family. But God used her life in building up the kingdom. My grandpa was a minister. Seven of his sons or sons-in-law out of the 12 children that he had were ordained to the ministry. And I would say that part of the reason I am here today is because a two-year-old whose mother died didn't allow that to define the rest of her life. And so I, you know, there's others of you that many of you would probably have other interesting stories that you could tell about your ancestors, but God used humanity throughout the history of the world to accomplish his purposes. We see that in the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, and through Mary. And most of the names on this list mean nothing to us. We find them difficult to pronounce. Yet each one of these names lived a life. They had a family, an occupation. There were struggles. There were victories. There were great times. There's a story there. And they were an integral part of the lineage of Jesus. At that time, they had no idea, though. Jesus is God. The entire Gospel of Matthew Matthew is centered around proving that fact. In Matthew 16, Peter declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is not only God, he's also fully human, and it's important to recognize him as such. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became fully human. Because Jesus is human, that means there was a genealogy. There was a history. His ancestors shaped the history and the times and the culture in which he was born. God chose to be born at that time in that culture in that, to that particular mother and adoptive father. God chose to enter history through that particular family to redeem history and redeem the entire world. Jesus coming as human demonstrated that humanity is worth saving. Yes, it had been marred by sin, but humanity was created in the very image of God. And now our creator shows up within that environment to show that we have infinite worth and that he's willing to die for us in order to buy us back to redeem us. Matthew establishes that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to have Darren, in closing, lead a song. One of my favorite Christmas songs is number 131 in the Mennonite Hymnal, Lo How Rose Air Blooming. And interestingly, it is one of the only songs that I know of that focuses on Jesus' lineage and the prophecy of Messiah coming from the stump of Jesse with Jesus pictured as a rose. In Jesus, we see what it means to be human in a way that God originally designed. Jesus' ancestors had a mix of strengths and weaknesses. Their stories and their lives highlight God's incredible grace and compassion toward humanity. And that's true for each of our genealogies as well. But Jesus overcomes his ancestors' weaknesses and gives us an example by which to live. 
until Christ's return, we continue to live in a fallen world. And while humanity has been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the rest of creation remains unredeemed until the return of our Messiah when he, the King of Kings, ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus' royalty firmly established in Matthew and Luke that he is the Son of God. And as adopted children into the family of God, we now share in the same genealogy as Jesus Christ. This is our genealogy, our story, our ancestors. Romans 7, uh, Romans 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. For ye have not yet received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Let's stand together and sing number 131. <clears throat>